such a big race. I mean, that was it was all that was the Olympics. I mean, that, that year it was all about Ben Johnson versus Carl Lewis. This day, the most phenomenal thing I've seen on an athletics track. I mean, Ben Johnson was just in a, it was a different class. It was two races. I mean, he had that sort of bullet start. And his speed was, was phenomenal. I mean, everybody was just like... I didn't think for one moment I was going to lose that 100-meter final until we crossed that line. I went over to him and congratulate him, and he pulled his arm away. He wouldn't even take, take my handshake. I've just been handed a piece of paper here that if it's right, it'll be the most dramatic story out of these Olympics or perhaps any others. It says, Ben Johnson of Canada has been caught taking drugs and is expected to be stripped of his 100 meters gold medal, according to International Olympic Committee sources. The urine sample of Ben Johnson was found to contain the metabolites of a banned substance, namely stanozolol. It's an anabolic steroid. The IOC Medical Commission... It's confirmed Ben Johnson has taken steroids. He's stripped of his gold medal, he's out of the games, out of career, home in shame. Regardless, if you like, of what happened afterwards, the, the experience of that moment, the, the sort of the emotions that it, that it, that it evoked, are still there. And so even though it was you know, completely tainted, as a spectacle, it still is emblazoned on my mind. He cheated. You know, I mean, you, you just can't feel sympathy for a person who's cheated. And, and now, you know, several years later, um, you know, this sport is still feeling the effects from, you know, his decision to cheat. Just a quick warning before we start the show properly today. The following podcast largely discusses recent developments in the speaking out movement. There are some references to childhood abuse and sexual assault contained within. Some of the content may be upsetting or triggering to people who have been affected by abuse in the past. I would recommend listening with earphones in or definitely out of earshot of anyone under 16. Chapter 1. The Dirtiest Race in History the 100 meters final is the most high profile and prestigious Olympic event. It is the jewel in the crown of an international sporting festival that takes place every four years. 
It has been contested at every Summer Games since 1896. It represents all the core principles and ideals of sporting endeavour. There is something beautiful and pure in its simplicity. A 100 metre dash to determine the fastest person on the planet. Many athletes cite the 100 metre sprint as the reason they took up the sport. The event has been celebrated and eulogised in numerous documentaries and films such as Chariots of Fire. It is up there with the Super Bowl and the World Cup final as a transcendent sporting event that everyone can easily identify with. As a TV event, it is pure box office. The 1988 final at the Olympics in Seoul in South Korea is the most famous and infamous race in history. The footage of the race is still electric viewing to this very day. Press pause on the podcast for a moment and go and have a look on YouTube to fully appreciate its intrigue. Looking back at the footage of the time, the pre-race conversation centres primarily around two men, Carl Lewis and Ben Johnson. Lewis at this time is the poster boy for US athletics, following his stellar performances at the previous games in Los Angeles, where he collected four gold medals. He is the biggest star in the sport. He would go on to become the only athlete to ever win gold medals at four different Olympic Games. And then there's the Canadian, Ben Johnson. Johnson had finished third at the Los Angeles Games, but had made huge strides in the intervening four years. From that point, he had emerged as Lewis's biggest threat. The pair shared a cantankerous rivalry. They were far from friends. The previous year in Rome, at the World Championships, Johnson had set a world record in beating Lewis. The momentum had very much swung in his favour. The intrigue is only increased by a hamstring injury sustained in the run-up to the Games that briefly threatens Johnson's very participation. The most striking thing looking at the race footage is the physical difference between the two men. Lewis is slim and svelte. Johnson, on the other hand, is almost ludicrously muscular. His arms, his shoulders, his upper legs are scarily enlarged. He wouldn't have looked out of place in a wrestling ring at Madison Square Garden at the time. The pre-race rituals before a 100 metre race are always fascinating to watch. The runners prowl back and forth like caged animals, waiting to be released back to the wild. They psych themselves up by shouting, by slapping their faces, by jumping up and down in the spot. It is crucial to stay loose and limber in advance of the sudden burst of power and pace that is imminent. The 1988 final is no different. The runners stretch and nervously hop and jog on the spot, pretending not to look at one another. Everyone except Ben Johnson, that is. Johnson stares straight ahead, unblinking, his bloodshot eyes almost bulging out of their sockets. His focus is remarkable. Crucially, he is the last man to settle in the blocks, a huge psychological advantage over his opponents. The starter's gun fires, and within a couple of seconds, the result is already apparent. It might be the greatest start to a race any sprinter has ever had. Starting in lane six, Johnson does not so much leap from the blocks as explode from them. By the halfway point, he is somehow two or three metres clear, a lead that only grows as the race continues. He crosses the line with his right arm raised aloft, his index finger pointed towards the sky. He is defiant, unsmiling in victory. He brushes away the congratulations of his great rival Carl Lewis, still lost for now in his own world of extreme focus. 
The identity of the victor is not in itself a surprise. Johnson has been one of the best on the planet for some time now. The big story is in the manner of his victory. This is a stellar field of runners, one of the greatest ever assembled. And Johnson hasn't just beaten them, he has decimated them, made them all look like amateurs. His winning time of 9.79 seconds is the fastest any human being has ever run the 100 metres, a world record that would last for over 20 years. Incredibly, three other runners also break the 10 second barrier, yet not one of them comes close to Johnson. What happened next has been seared into the collective memory of the Olympics ever since, and is brilliantly retold in ESPN's seminal documentary called 9.79. The image of the medal ceremony, 24 hours later, where Carl Lewis still hasn't come to terms with Johnson's sudden newfound power, the suspicion on the faces of the journalists present, the press conference afterwards, where a triumphant Johnson eulogised his own greatness, all have to be seen to be believed. I'd like to say that my name is Benjamin Sinclair Johnson Jr. and this world record will last 50 years, maybe 100, he had told the room. Later he said, a gold medal, that's something no one can take away from you. But they could take it away. And they did. 24 hours later, the news emerged that Johnson had failed a drugs test. Traces of the banned steroid Stanozolol had been found in his urine. It was the biggest scandal in Olympic history. It made newsreels and headlines all over the world. Johnson was sensationally forced to hand his medal back. He was ushered out of South Korea in disgrace, returning to an angry Canada that had been humiliated by his duplicity. Johnson would plead his innocence for some time before eventually admitting to his steroid use at the Dublin inquiry set up by the Canadian government to investigate drug use in sport. He would serve a four-year ban from the sport. A brief attempt at a comeback in 1993 was cut abruptly short when he again tested positive for steroids. He became a pariah, synonymous only with those blistering 9.79 seconds where he flew too close to the sun before crashing down to earth. However, Johnson was far from the only one using performance-enhancing drugs. He had simply been careless enough to get caught at the scene of his biggest victory. In the years and decades that followed, it emerged that six of the eight athletes that competed in the 1988 Olympic final had used drugs of some type. Only American sprinter Calvin Smith and the Brazilian Robson da Silva remained clean throughout their careers. Drug use was rampant and endemic at the highest level of the sport. Carl Lewis, the runner-up, was awarded the gold medal and is still considered the champion in the record books today. In the popular mythology of the time, the clean-cut hero had seen off the scowling, cheating villain in Johnson. But there is a massive asterisk beside the golden boy's name as well. Not everyone was fooled by Lewis. His constant self-promotion and his holier-than-thou stance on drug-taking rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way. The sceptics felt vindicated in 2003, when it emerged that Lewis had failed three drug tests in the run-up to the 1988 Olympics. Under the rules of the time, he should have been banned from the Games, but the results were covered up by the US Olympic Committee after they accepted his plea that he had innocently taken a herbal supplement. The bronze medalist, Britain's Lindford Christie, who would go on to win gold in Barcelona in 1992, also failed a test for the stimulant pseudoephedrine after the final. Again, 
he was cleared on a split decision by the IOC after successfully arguing that he had taken it inadvertently in ginseng tea. The entire thing stank to high heaven. The biggest loser was Calvin Smith. If anti-doping regulations had been properly enforced, Smith, a gifted American sprinter, would have left the 1988 Games as the Olympic champion and world record holder. To this day, he remains the only man among the first five finishers in Seoul untouched by a drug scandal. Researching the story of this most infamous of races, a number of common themes jump off the page. The scale of the wrongdoing. The widespread acceptance that wrongdoing was just how it was in their world. The hypocrisy of certain people involved who preached against the exact things they practiced. The incompetence of the regulatory bodies. The damage the scandal would do to the wider perception of the Olympic Games. Themes that we have sadly become all too familiar with in wrestling in the last year or so. Chapter 2. The Fox Guards the Hen House I vividly remembered the day of the 1988 Olympic 100 metre final. I was only seven years old. It is one of the first major sporting events that I can properly recall. I remember playing in the back garden when my mother excitedly beckoned me inside. We were going to watch the race to determine the fastest man in the world. It seemed so definitive and clear-cut. It conjured images of a real-life Superman being crowned before our very eyes. Seeing Johnson steamroll his opponents, not so much beating the field but obliterating it, I was captivated, enthralled. The notulent finger point as he crossed the line seemed so cool. The whole thing seemed so effortless. It was like he was powered by rocket fuel. And then, three days later, the bombshell struck. He had been powered by rocket fuel, in the form of illegal steroids. Drugs? What were drugs? How did you take them? Why would you take them? Why wouldn't everyone take them? I was confused, then angry, and then upset, and probably all three at once. I had so many questions. For the first time in my young life, I was faced with an uncomfortable truth about the people we put on pedestals. The fastest man on the planet was anything but that. It had all been a lie. He was a fake, a cheat. Superman's cape had lost its sheen. You would think that I learned a valuable lesson that day in the late summer of 1988, but I didn't. Here I am, over 30 years later, still struggling with the fact that people in wrestling I believed in and cared about turned out to be liars and far worse. Abusers, rapists, manipulators, cowards, paedophiles, liars, apologists, enablers. In the same way that those athletes cheated in 1988, the wrestling community thought that the rules of law and of society were beneath them. In the same way that those drug cheats cut corner after corner, so too did those who should have been keeping vulnerable young people safe. I want to be perfectly clear from the outset that this podcast is in no way an attempt to equate the awful crimes committed in wrestling with the relatively insignificant crime of athletes cheating to win a race. There is no comparison. They are totally opposite ends of the spectrum of wrongdoing. 
That is not the point. I would never want to do or say anything that would in any way trivialize the suffering of those that so bravely spoke out last year or who continue to suffer in silence with their own story. Rather, this is a podcast about believing in something or someone and having that illusion shattered. About a system so rotten to the core that the deeper you look, the more wrongdoing you find. About putting people on a pedestal only to see the whole thing come crumbling down. About a major scandal rocking a scene and then nothing seemingly changing, despite promise after promise that it would. Much has been made in recent days about fans and their attitude to the imminent return of British and Irish wrestling. There are people who somehow believe in British wrestling still, and in the likes of Progress Wrestling, just as I once briefly believed in Ben Johnson. Part of me despairs at their unquestioning naivety. And honestly, part of me envies their enduring ability to still somehow have hope to believe in these people who have done nothing to earn it. In the opening montage to this show, you will have heard two voices giving their takes on the 1988 Olympic final. On the one hand, you had Michael Johnson, the speaker with the American accent, one of the all-time greats of track and field, a holder of eight Olympic gold medals and a world record holder at 200 and 400 metres. In the audio, he focuses on the fact that Ben Johnson cheated. His disdain is palpable. It is his only concern. On the other hand, you have Jonathan Edwards, the voice with the British accent. Edwards is a former triple jump Olympic gold medalist and world record holder. Despite being in full knowledge that the race was a sham, Edwards is still able to look at it with rose-tinted glasses. He is hung up on the feeling he had back in the moment in 1988, rather than the wrongdoing involved. It is a jarring juxtaposition of two completely different viewpoints. I cannot think of a better analogy than this for the division that exists within the wrestling fan base right now. In researching this show, I was rocked to the core by the following passage from Richard Moore's landmark book, The Dirtiest Race in History, about the aftermath to the 1988 Olympics. Unbelievably, little was learned from the scandal. Absolutely nothing changed after 1988. Nothing, says Moore. It took a full 12 years before the World Anti-Doping Agency, or WADA as it's known, was formed. The International Olympic Committee were very blasé about it. It wasn't a fight they wanted. It wasn't in the sport's interest to have this bad publicity. Juan Antonio Samarank, the IOC president, couldn't care less one way or the other. He was ambivalent on the whole subject, he continues. There were one or two individuals in the IOC who were keen to fight it, but it was very limited. It was very much a case of the fox guarding the hen house, he grimly concludes. It is that last line that really hits home hard, especially in this of all weeks. Chapter 3 The more things change, the more they stay the same. In the aftermath of speaking out, the one glimmer of hope we had, the silver lining to the dark clouds that had gathered all around, was that it was going to be a watershed moment for pro wrestling. Surely things would have to change. Surely the wrongdoers would be banished from the scene. 
surely proper practical and effective safeguarding would become the accepted norm surely the days of fans needing to pester promotions into doing the right things were over surely to god it would all get better and yet here we are and we all feel like utter fools for ever believing that change would happen the list of missteps we have seen in the last week in wrestling is mind-boggling in the same week that matt riddle was rewarded with the wwe us title we saw progress wrestling stumble from crisis to crisis each one worse than the last we all know the story by now i'm sure word emerged and it could only have come from the locker room let's not forget that paul robinson who had been named during speaking out had been used as an agent on their first show back just let that sentence alone sink in for a moment on the very first show back when politely questioned about it on twitter the promotion decided that silence was the best policy this the same promotion that promises openness and transparency in its shiny new safeguarding policy it took days of being constantly questioned on twitter before progress finally responded and the response when it came was as infuriating as it was inadequate they doubled down on their bizarre earlier claim that they could not name people who worked backstage without their permission most likely a lame attempt to explain their delay in responding they blatantly attempted to shift the focus onto the talent working the show by claiming that they had no objection to robinson being involved the idea that the young wrestlers who worked this show hoping to use the booking as a gateway to wwe would rock the boat in any way is preposterous even more ludicrous is the fact that they were even put in a position to make that kind of call in the first place let's not forget that millie mckenzie herself a victim of a similar abuser at a similarly young age was also booked on this show worse again she was asked to wrestle in the very match that robinson was responsible for putting together everywhere you look in this case the old power dynamics that led to a culture of abuse in wrestling still exist except now the people who put that dynamic in place are putting the onus on the wrestlers to break it down instead of taking responsibility for their own decisions the most shocking thing to me as i read this initial statement was that there was no attempt to distance themselves from robinson or part ways with him quite the opposite in fact their initial intent had been to use him as an in-ring performer on the show it was a badly written and amateurish statement clearly written by someone with little experience of such matters they also seemed to think that running basic dbs checks on their talent was a sufficient way to weed out wrongdoers not one person named in speaking out would have been flagged in a basic dbs check such checks are absolutely necessary as a minimum standard but only in the same way that having running water in the building is but to have that as your only safeguarding measure is a ridiculous derogation of duty in pointing to the use of these checks as a justification for using robinson progress shows a frightening lack of understanding of what proper thorough screening and safeguarding actually entails it would take three more days before another statement appeared this second statement again appears to indicate that progress saw little wrong with booking robinson it outright says that they deemed him as not presenting a threat to talent 
even in the face of a massive backlash from whatever fan base they might have left, the old progress habits of doubling down on bad decisions and stubborn refusal to admit to being wrong remain. The statement concludes by saying that Robinson himself had decided to step away from the company. It is particularly galling that he should be allowed this luxury. There is a certain magnanimity associated with the act of walking away with your head held high. It even leaves an opening for him to return in the future. Progress's refusal to cut ties with him is a blatant refusal to draw a line in the sand where no line should even be necessary. It also sets a precedent for them to book other abusers in the future, at a time when they should be providing as much reassurance as possible about safety, they are only giving us more reasons to be worried. It's only fair to say at this point that a few hours before this show was recorded, Robinson took to Facebook to give his side of the story. It is a somewhat incoherent statement in which he does not deny the chief allegation against him. He seems more concerned with taking credit for trying to help the victim. He also apologises for a strange incident in which he went to the victim's father to tell him what had been happening at IPW UK, but that he said some hurtful things to him in order to rile him up. There is nothing in his statement that makes me alter my stance that progress should never have used him in the first place. Of greater concern is the fact that progress is seen as an industry leader. If smaller promotions particularly ones that come under less scrutiny, see that progress are okay with booking people named in speaking out, they will feel emboldened to do the same themselves. It's hard to look at progress wrestling and feel anything but despair. It feels like the worst traits of their remaining owner have been amplified since the departure of the others. Everyone involved in the absolute shambles that played out across a long and miserable week has no business running a wrestling company no less the industry leader. The fans deserve better. The wrestlers deserve better. The wrestling scene deserves better. We also deserve better journalism and reporting from the wrestling media who constantly sidestep these difficult stories for fear it will cost them their cushy WWE access. The people that were hired in a panic last summer by Progress without any due diligence appear to have good intentions and are well liked by certain elements of the fan base. But meaning well and having lots of friends in the audience are not the qualifications needed to handle the operations and PR of the biggest promotions in the UK. If promotions are serious about change and doing better, then they need to start hiring serious people, people with qualifications and experience in safeguarding and PR. And good caliber people of this ilk don't come cheap. If a promotion cannot or will not spend the money needed to make these hirings, then they shouldn't be running shows in the first place. Further afield, the use of Marty Skrull to film an angle backstage at New Japan Strong was further cause for despair. The fact that two wrestlers, both named as part of the IPW UK grooming ring, were welcomed back with open arms by major promotions in the same week is scarcely believable. It is an insult to every person that spoke up last summer. We were supposed to be doing better so that the harrowing scenario that unfolded in that promotion should never happen again. And yet, wrestling has failed at the very first step of making sure that those responsible never set foot in a ring again. It seems as if the wrestling acumen, experience and standing in the industry that these men hold 
is valued more than the well-being and safety of the roster and fan base. The boys club mentality of training schools and locker rooms is also alive and well. We've seen young fans singled out and mocked online when they dare ask pertinent questions about those working on shows. We've seen mass blockings of fans on Twitter by employees of so-called major promotions. The atmosphere is growing increasingly toxic when we hoped that the lines of communication would be clearer than ever. I have no idea what the solutions to all these problems are. Some of them seem like basic common sense. Seeing the IPW UK case come up again should be a reminder to us all of how harrowing that and other cases were. Wrestling still has not done right by that poor girl. As long as anyone involved in these cases is around, it never will. Simply not booking people named in speaking out is an absolute minimum requirement. Promotions are going to have to let go of the idea that fans who ask difficult questions are doing it to stir up trouble. We ask because we care. The day we stop asking is the day that promotions really need to worry because that means we've stopped caring. Promotions promised us that they would do better. They need to stop getting angry and defensive when we hold them to their word. Chapter 4 I despair. Sadly, the Olympic 100 metre final of 1988 was not the last time in my childhood that I was let down by people I believed in. In reality, it pales into insignificance compared to what was to follow in my young life. Many more painful lessons were to come, lessons no child needs to learn. Lesson is probably the wrong word here. Honestly, I struggled to come up with the right one. I was failed many times as a child by the adults around me, people who could and should have protected me. In that environment, you grow up believing that the world is a brutal and unfair place. The only way you can rationalize what is happening is to convince yourself you deserved it. It hardens your soul after a while. You develop an outer steel just to survive. You learn to stop acknowledging your own feelings, to suppress them. You do all kinds of unhealthy things just to cope. You put up a facade to convince yourself and others that you're fine. But deep inside, you're anything but. Again, I'm not trying to make this podcast about myself. I don't need or want sympathy or attention. But it's important that everyone be reminded of the seriousness of what happened to so many innocent people in wrestling the far-reaching and long-lasting effect it has. Maybe there's someone out there that thinks no one understands their plight. Please believe me, there are lots of people who do. Kind people, professional people, people who can help. When I now ask so-called difficult questions of people in pro wrestling, it's because I cannot and will not stand by and let any young vulnerable person be failed again. No one deserves to be abused. No one deserves to carry the after effects of their trauma through life like a burden that weighs them down and keeps them from happiness and fulfillment. To my fellow fans, I would say keep being vocal. Keep speaking up for what you believe is right. Sadly, we've seen this week that it's the only way that some people will listen and act. We have to remember what's most important 
and always be mindful that victims may be able to read what we're saying. Sometimes it's easier to veer into gossiping or making a joke or a meme out of the situation. We're all guilty of it. When the world is dark and grim, a flippant joke can be a coping mechanism to lighten the mood. But we need to be more careful not to trivialise what happened. Lives were ruined. People are still suffering. We should think every time we talk about speaking out. Is what we are saying helpful? Or could it add to the suffering of someone vulnerable who might see or hear us? I will not be signing off this podcast with a message of positivity or a neat conclusion as is the usual tone of boots and trunks. Quite frankly, I'm sick of hearing talk on both sides of naive positivity or toxic negativity. The only productive way to approach this situation is with realism, with your critical hat on, and as always, with one eye on history. Will the wrestling scene ever change for the better? Do those involved in important positions of power actually share our appetite for change? Are they even capable of change? I'm really not sure anymore. For now, I do not consider myself a fan or a supporter. I'm no more than an interested observer from afar. But my energy is waning. My tolerance levels are at an all-time low. My patience is wearing thin. As long as the fox continues to guard the henhouse, I will continue to despair.